It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour on the AmericanOutloud.news, the talk radio network on iHeartRadio, where you will hear the voices of freedom and the outlaw truth. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singir, U.S. Army retired, the CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, founder of United Australian PL, host of the uh, New Paradigms with Sargis Singiri that also airs on Right American Media, and your host for the National Security Hour. I do want to remind our audiences out there that American Out Loud Radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best-in-class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can also hear them on the podcast on those same apps. My guest today is my dear friend, Chuck Holton. Chuck is a U.S. Army veteran of Operation Just Cause in Panama, where he actually has a residence also. A former member of the 75th Ranger Regiment, Chuck has uh, been on the front lines protecting America and Americans since uh, leaving the service by bringing his grand view of the truth as well as contributing to the Christian Broadcasting Network and as a cameraman for Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and his wee blog, Boots on the Ground. And also, more importantly, the hot zone with Chuck Holton. Chuck has been covering the conflicts in Europe uh, even before it started and uh, following the crisis on our southern border from South America through the Daring Gap and into the southern borders. He is uh, here today to discuss uh, both the southern border, what is happening, especially in Panama, and also Nakova Kavarabak and a movie that he recently uh, put together that has won many awards overseas. Chuck, it's good to have you here, buddy. Thank you, Sargus. Thanks for having me. Chuck, let's start with Panama because uh, I'm interested. I know you were in Daring Gap recently. Again, every place Chuck goes, he saves somebody. Um, what is happening now with the fact that we set the new record on our southern border with the largest number of illegals crossing into the United States in its history? The thing that I think many people don't understand about this uh, crisis on the U.S. southern border is that an increasing number of those people are not coming from the Western Hemisphere. They're coming from all over the world. Uh, we're seeing tens of thousands of people coming from China, from Somalia, from Afghanistan, from Indonesia, from uh, Africa, all over the place. And the way that they get to the United States is by usually flying to Ecuador because Ecuador doesn't have any, um, they don't have any visa requirements, so it's easy to get in there. Uh, any Anybody can enter Ecuador. Then they get on a bus and they go north. Uh, up through Colombia to the northern border of Colombia, where there is this, uh, you know, it's about a 60-mile stretch of very forbidding jungle called the Darien Gap. And that's where they have to walk because there's no road through the Darien Gap. Although these days you could say there's a superhighway of mud going through there because there are so many people coming through the Darien Gap that they... 
are are trampling down this once pristine jungle to the point that they're destroying that environment. Uh, it, it is a real it, shocking to see just how bad it's actually become. I started reporting on this crisis back when the record numbers that they were seeing come through the Darien Gap were something like 36 to 40,000 per year. Now they've got that many per month coming through, uh, uh, sometimes upwards of four or 5,000 people a day. And this is supposed to be the low season. Uh, so this is what they call the wet season down there where they get the most rain. And uh, that makes it unbelievably perilous for the people that are traipsing through the gap. Uh, many of them dragging their children along. I've seen pregnant women. I've seen uh, nursing babies being dragged through the gap. We're talking about walking six and a half days through the jungle with no food, no clean water, uh, bugs the size of your face. The, there are predators out there. Many of them are human. There are lots of bandits and, and uh, gang members and things like that that are robbing and raping at will. There's no government presence to speak of out there. Uh, while they're crossing through the gap. And so virtually everyone that goes through there gets victimized in some way. They have to pay the cartels in money, but their real payment that they're having to make to cross the gap is in human misery. And there's a ton, a ton of that. It's very, very costly. Uh, the, the night before we got there last week, uh, they had more than 50 people killed by a landslide uh, that that buried them and um, shut off part of the valley that they were walking through. Uh, and so it's it's really a very, very bad situation. The people who live in the Darien Gap are mostly indigenous tribes, the uh, Kuna and the Embera and the Wunan uh, tribes that live out there. These are people that typically live a very primitive lifestyle. Uh, we're talking you know, dugout canoes, spears, no electricity, no running water, things like that. Uh, but because of the massive flow of humanity coming through there, their way of life is being destroyed. And they are some of the ones who are turning to crime, uh, robbing these migrants. They feel like they're justified to do that because these migrants are destroying their way of life. They're making it impossible for them to engage in the normal activities that they used to make their living at, which is farming and things like that. So we went out there to see it deep into the jungle to one of these uh, it, these uh, indigenous villages that's about three and a half hours up the river from the road. And we're, it was absolutely appalling what we saw. Trash everywhere, dead bodies in the river. And uh, this is a, a village of about 400 people that now has four or 5,000 people a day coming into the village. Uh, and these are desperately ill people. Many, virtually everybody who's coming out of the jungle into that village in any civilized place would be immediately put in the hospital. Uh, they're, they're coming through suffering from parasites, from jungle rot, from uh, the trench foot, from heat exhaustion. And they're just falling out left and right. Uh, they have no idea how bad it is when they go into the jungle uh, and how long it will take. But um, it, it is really surprising that more of them don't die on the way through. Now, all of this is being the reason that there are so many more coming through now than there used to be is that the United States is facilitating, is making it easier and uh, let and safer for them to come through. Uh, so at one point, probably one in 10 that went into the jungle didn't come out again. But now it's probably down to one in 25 or one in 50 
that dies in the jungle. And that's a direct result of the United States spending millions of dollars to make the crossing quicker and easier and safer so that more people will come. And the the upshot of that is that actually more people end up dying because a, a smaller percentage of a much larger number turns out to be more people. So uh, the United States is culpable for this. It's absolutely crushing Panama. They're having to spend millions of dollars a month just to feed and house these people, even though they're trying to get them out of their country as soon as possible. As soon as they make it through the gap into Panama, they... Uh, you know, they, they're pretty much home free. The Panamanian government arranges for buses to take them up to uh, the Costa Rican border and immediately uh, sends them into Costa Rica. And then the, um, the Costa Rican government puts them on buses and sends them to Nicaragua. The Nicaraguan government puts them on buses and sends them uh, right up into uh, Honduras, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to the United States southern border. Uh, so this is a growing problem. It's going to continue to get worse. Until, and it's not that they couldn't stop it. Panama actually did stop it dead during the COVID crisis. And they just did that by putting out the word that if you cross illegally into our country from Colombia, you will stay in a camp in the Darien Gap until the COVID crisis is over. And there was a small group of people who got stuck in the camps down there, which are very miserable, for more than a year. Uh, by saying that they had to stay there, they stopped coming immediately. Uh, and so they could do it. They just don't have the political will to do it. Uh, they're, they're too cowardly to do it. And they are being encouraged. Hmm. Uh, the migrants are being encouraged by the uh, by the, the government of the United States making it easier. Well, I, the question would be a couple of things. I know you mentioned Ecuador. I do want to go back and revisit and ask um, why have they always had last, you know, lax uh, visa requirements? As, has there been pressure to change that? Secondary is why wouldn't the United States help build the facilities in those camps in Panama that they would have to stay there for a longer period of time if he just basically did nothing more than a treaty possibly with the Panamanian government or at the same time maybe have a treaty agreement with the Mexican government to be able to have our um, uh, border securities to be on the southern side of Mexico uh, and interdict those uh, migrants there before they trek through Mexico into the United States. So that gives us at least double layers of protection have you seen anything or do you know of anything that uh, has been in discussion to maybe try to at least put a couple of layers where we can at least stop them and force them to rethink uh, just coming through the current process that seems uh, uh, to have been funded mostly by the U.S. monies and U.N. to basically get them bust directly into the United States? Absolutely not. There, There is no will whatsoever to actually stop this. And everything that the United States under Secretary Mayorkas has done has only served to increase the flow and not decrease the flow. Uh, now, you're right. It would be much cheaper if the United States were to say, we will come to Panama and we will build camps to hold these people. And we will put out the word that if you come into Panama illegally, you'll stay in that camp for one year before you are eligible to continue your journey. They wouldn't be able to continue walking 
from down there because if you put those camps down in the jungle uh again they're they're half dead or mostly dead by the time they spend six days in the jungle it'd be another 20 days of walking through the jungle to get out of there uh, on foot and so if they just didn't allow them to be put into buses they would have to stay in those camps and they would stop coming and it would be vastly cheaper for for the united states to pay for that than to than what we're seeing now with them coming into the united states and taking up our resources in the form of healthcare and education and lots of other things law enforcement things like that so there is obviously no will and more than that not is there not only is there no will to stop it the will is actually to encourage it and to make it easier and faster and safer and to to see more people coming that way so when you have something like 40 or 50,000 people a month coming from again all over the world and these these are people coming from Venezuela from Haiti from Cuba they're coming from failed states and they're they've lived in places that had no rule of law you know Somalia and Afghanistan and places like that they don't even know what rule of law means and so we're importing them into the United States and it's no wonder that the crime rate goes up in the places where they congregate because they don't know what it means to follow the rules because they've never lived anywhere with rules. Uh, and, and this is only going to continue to get worse. Uh, again, Panama and uh, you know all of the, the governments along the way certainly don't want these people, uh, but they are calling on the United States to not stop it, but to get them to the U.S. faster. So what the U.S. is doing now is they're setting up centers in Colombia where the migrants can come to these centers just outside of Cali and can register, can essentially be, have their initial interview that's supposed to take place when they cross into the United States, but they're going to have that interview in Colombia, and then they're going to get on an airplane and fly directly into the United States at U.S. taxpayer expense deep into the heartland of the U.S. and skip the border altogether. That serves the purpose for the for Mayorkas and the State Department of saying that, uh, or the Department of Homeland Security of saying that uh, those numbers don't show up on the number of migrant encounters along the border. And so they're able to lie with statistics and say that the number of migrants coming into the United States is actually going down when it's not, it's continuing to go up. Now, what I what I will say, um, I'm sorry, is, Chuck. For a second, let me uh, jump in here. Part of that also is the fact that um, um, basically, if uh, you stay into the facilities that have been built already to house the migrants, then they'll be on the books. But if they don't stay there and they go into a hotel, then they're not going to be on the books. Then they don't have to even um, really be held uh, to standard of actually coming in to our legal systems to be uh, looked at for possibility of uh, whether their case uh, for asylum is valid or not. So there's another issue. So we got a lot of um, uh, beds that have been already built that the migrants are not using because they're trying to skirt the system and somebody's advising them to do so. That's correct. Uh, the The U.S. government is using every means at, it dispo at its disposal not to stop the migration flow, but to encourage the migration flow and to spread it out throughout the United States and uh, to, to keep it off the books wherever possible.
It, it's a shame, but it's a reality. I mean, we could uh, talk forever on this uh, subject, and I know that you've been covering it, but, um, um, you know, it's not a reason why uh, the U.S. government under the current administration has chosen to do this. Is the fact that they're doing it. And we have to make sure that all the citizens out there are aware of the fact that it's the administration that is behind uh, the processing and uh, actually the increase of the migrants that are coming in. Um, and uh, I don't try to um, get into their heads as to why they decide to do this. Um, you know, that's a decision that they made maybe for a long-term political uh, or economic needs as they see it. For the U.S., mm. I do want to make sure our audience know that all my shows go to podcast typically one or two days after the broadcast is heard on talk radio. You can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts, and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me. Uh, Chuck, uh, we're going to take a short break, come back, and then I do want to talk about Nakoba Karabakh and what is happening with to the Armenians. With the invasion from Azerbaijan, it doesn't seem like the United States has taken any stands uh, right now in support of the Armenian nation and populace. But uh, we'll do that when we come back for our second segment. This is a National Security Hour, and I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sorgerson, your U.S. Army retiring. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Again, welcome to the National Security Hour. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singiri. I do want to make sure our audience is aware that uh, we ask them to be sure to make AmericanOutloud.com your daily stuff for the latest news and happenings. Uh, we all must do our part and share the stories, our articles, and videos so that we can help secure America's future. You can also find uh, more about my show and get all the latest podcasts if you go to the menu navigation bar at AmericanOutloud.com. 
on our show and schedule, you will be in the know. My guest again, uh, coming back for our second segment, uh, is uh, Chuck Holton, dear friend. Uh, he's also the host of the uh, Hot Zone with Chuck Holton. Um, Chuck's been uh, covering, as I said earlier, the conflicts in Europe even before they started. And uh, he's been following the crisis at our southern border, which we already spoke about um, all the way through the Darien Gap. But uh, he's also here today to talk and discuss ethnic cleansing in Nakobar Karabakh and the future of possible regional wars in the southern Caucasus. Uh, Chuck, uh, get us up to speed. What is going on there? So the Nagorno-Karabakh, I think you have to kind of back up a little bit and explain to people what that is, because most people have no idea. I know I didn't before the war in 2020. The tiny country of Armenia is situated right between Turkey and Azerbaijan and just north of Iran. Uh, north of, uh, of Armenia is Georgia, and then north of Georgia is, is Russia. So it's a very strategic piece of property, uh, but it's tiny. And uh, again, only two and a half million people live in Armenia, and they are uh, unfortunately kind of squeezed between a rock and a hard place. Uh, Azerbaijan is a a Muslim dictatorship run by uh, Ilham Aliyev, uh, president there, uh, and they have been at odds with the people in uh, Armenia for, well, 100 100 years or more, Uh, the Soviet Union kind of created Azerbaijan out of whole cloth. Uh, Stalin uh, moved some people in there from northern Iran and eastern Russia to create Azerbaijan in 1917. And so the the saying is that uh, Coca-Cola is older than Azerbaijan is. Uh, But Armenia, on the other hand, has been around essentially since the time of Noah. Uh, It sits right at the foot of Mount Ararat, and the Armenian people are mentioned in the Bible uh, and have been around for literally thousands of years. They are the world's first Christian country. Uh, They declared Christianity as a nation in 301 AD, uh, which uh, means that there are... uh, over a thousand churches and monasteries built by Armenians in uh, and across that whole region, not just in Armenia, but in modern day Azerbaijan and in Turkey and even in Syria. Uh, so the the Armenians were a very powerful, very uh, you know influential people group in that region, kind of like the Kurds. Uh, and uh, in they have been persecuted by their Muslim neighbors ever since they had Muslim neighbors. Uh, And so in the early 1900s, in 1914 to 1918, something like that, uh, the Ottoman Turks decided to wipe out the Armenians and undertook to murder about a million and a half of them uh, and drive them out of what is now modern day Turkey. Uh, The the eastern third of Turkey used to be part of Armenia, but it's not anymore. so they that's only one of several genocides that the Armenians have had to face. And now they're facing another one. The uh, uh, in During the Soviet Union, Stalin created uh, several exclaves of 
because there were groups of Armenian people that lived in the area he wanted to make Azerbaijan. There were groups of Azeri people that lived in the area he wanted to make Armenia. So he just gave them kind of a swap. There's an exclave called Nakichevan, which is to the west of Armenia that actually belongs to Azerbaijan, which is to the east of Armenia. And inside Azerbaijan, there's this region called the Nagorno-Karabakh, or as the Armenians call it, Artsakh, the Republic of Artsakh. Uh, and it's it, it, at that at one time it had about three hundred thousand Armenians living in it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the Azeris basically went to war against them in 1991 to try to force them to become part of Azerbaijan. Obviously, these people didn't want to be part of Azerbaijan; they wanted to be part of their mother land, which is Armenia. And it's about a four-hour drive from the Nagorno-Karabakh into Armenia proper. And there was one corridor that stayed open where you could travel back and forth between the two. And that worked just fine for about 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. But during that 30-year period, the Azeris were gaining money and influence through their uh, oil and gas revenues. And they were putting a lot of that into building up their armed forces. And when they felt like the time was right in uh, September 2020, they attacked the Nagorno-Karabakh region and uh, their their desire was to subsume it completely and drive out all the Armenians that live there and make that into uh, just more land for Azerbaijan. Now, that uh, was that did not go well for Armenia in 2020. Armenia lost about 5,000 men in a 44-day time period. And finally, there was a ceasefire that was brokered by Russia to put a stop to the fighting but that, that stopped the war but didn't end it. So they just came to sort of a, a ceasefire there. And that ceasefire was broken on an almost daily basis by the Azeris uh, firing either artillery or small arms into the area that was still occupied by Armenians. So it was very tense and very difficult for them over the last couple of years. Um, and finally, over, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, because the Russians have been uh, unable to keep the peace there, uh, they had at one point about 8,000 peacekeepers in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Uh, but as the war in Ukraine has gone very badly for them, they've been pulling troops out and sending them to Ukraine. And so their influence has been weakening in the region. Armenia saw it and Azerbaijan saw it. And uh, so Armenia started courting a relationship with the United States to try to get somebody because they really need a big brother in that region. As soon as they started courting a relationship with the United States, the Russians actually started cozying up to the Azeris and saying, you know what, if you want to take that land, go right ahead. And so uh, only days after the very first military exercises between American forces and the Armenian forces, first ever, uh, and it was very, they were very small, only 85 American troops went to Armenia and trained a little bit on crowd control techniques with the Armenian armed forces. But just days after that, the Russians gave permission to the Azeris to go ahead and attack, and they made a full-out uh, all-on assault into Artsakh and drove out literally every 
uh, Armenian that is left. Uh, 120,000 people were left there. The Azeris have been blockading the one road into Armenia for about nine or 10 months. So those people were starving anyway. And with this full-on uh, uh, invasion into that region, they really had no choice but to just uh, capitulate and leave their homes, leave their you know, ancestry. Their ancestors are still buried there. Their, their ancient churches, all of that, let them fall into the hands of the uh, forces of Azerbaijan, which has now commenced to looting and destroying the, that area. Uh, and now you have 120,000 refugees from Artsakh in Armenia looking for places to live and food to eat and jobs and things like that. So it's a very it's, it's, a, it's a manufactured humanitarian crisis. It's a perfect example of how dictatorships like to weaponize migration uh, to use migrants as a weapon against their enemies. Yep. And that's exactly what Azerbaijan has done in this case with uh, Artsakh into Armenia. Yeah, it has. Unfortunately, Arsoc uh, now has been dissolved uh, as of one January. It will cease to exist in the coming new year, uh, coming year. Um, right. and it's um, it that means that's it. It's done. Um, uh, thousands of years of history just given up in a matter of hours. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, dictatorships uh, using uh, migrants as a means as a weapon system. And uh, I wrote the first uh, anniversary uh, article for. Uh, Near East, uh, we looked at uh, how Turkey was using migrants as a weapon system to keep uh, Europe hostage. And look what it has done now to Europe. It has pretty much destroyed it. Um, and unfortunate, but Turkey has had a hand in it. NATO has had a hand in here because there's a base that is a NATO-style base that just was open recently that Turkey and uh, Azerbaijan leadership celebrated uh, the opening of that inside of Azerbaijan territories. Do you think that this is uh, a larger plan, possibly a push either from NATO to try to open up a second front against Russia uh, to divide its force structure capabilities? Or do you think this is a way of baiting Iran into uh, this fight, given the fact that they'll need that land corridor left open? If army, if Azerbaijan decides to invade a southern portion of Armenia, how do you think this might be working on from a regional perspective? Who is going to benefit here? Is Turkey, is uh, Azerbaijan and Israel that is advising the Azari forces, Iran, Russia, China, United States? How are any of them either going to profit from this or is going to be detrimental to their uh, wants and desires uh, if this invasion continues? So Russia, the Russian Federation has a treaty organization just like NATO. That's, you know, the kind of the red version of NATO and they call it the, the CSTO. Uh, and the, Armenia was a member of the CSTO up until just recently. And they have uh, withdrawn from the CSTO because they felt like uh, when they got attacked, uh, let's see, our, the Azeris attacked Armenia in 2022 and took about 150 kilometers of Armenia proper. Uh, and Armenia called on the CSTO for military assistance, which was refused. And so Armenia said, well, what good is this organization? We're going to lean more toward NATO and try to get help from them. As I said, this is a very strategic piece of property here and everybody wants it. Uh, let's see. The 
Azeris need the Armenia and especially the southern uh, kind of flag of Armenia that goes down and touches the border with Iran. It's very narrow. It's only 36 miles wide. <clears throat> but Azerbaijan needs that corridor. They call it the Zanzigur Corridor in order to put a, uh, they want to put a natural gas pipeline across there in order to get more natural gas and oil out to the west uh, through Nakhichivan into Turkey. But the Armenians are not allowing that, and it's unlikely that they would. Uh, Iran and Russia both need that corridor to stay open and not be taken over by Azerbaijan and Turkey because they are using it to transport weapons, uh, drones and missiles and things like that from Iran into Russia. And so they, they want that open. The United States would love to have some kind of control over that specifically to uh, not not so much to open up a new front in the war between uh, Ukraine and Russia, but to kind of cause Russia to lose power, to lose influence and to to lose face among its allies in that region. Uh, so we want to embarrass Russia by uh, going in there and saying, well, Russia won't help you, but we will. And they've been doing that in some small ways. Uh, and again, that really angers Russia. But uh, Pashinyan, the president of, uh, of Armenia, is so fed up with Russians talking a good game and then not helping and actually cozying up to Azerbaijan. There's been some proof that Russia has been giving Azerbaijan permission for the aggression that they've done. And so it means that Russia is playing both sides against the middle here. Uh, Armenia has very few good options in the, at this at this time. Uh, they don't have any real natural resources to uh, to offer. They don't have oil and gas or anything like that. Uh, they they're so small that they don't have a lot of political influence. Everybody wants them, but uh, um, it's not politically viable for anybody to really take a stand for them. Uh, Turkey, of course, has made noises like it wants to complete the genocide that it started in 1915 and wipe out the rest of the Armenians. The Azeris have started, the, the president of Azerbaijan just recently gave a speech where he referred to Armenia as Western Azerbaijan and said that actually all of Armenia belongs to Azerbaijan and they'll they'll soon be pushing to take the rest of the country. If we see that happen, that could be absolutely disastrous for the Armenian people. That that could make the Armenian people like the Kurds and make uh, make them a people group without a nation state, without a home. And uh, that would be unthinkable for those people over there. But Again, they are vastly outnumbered. The army of Azerbaijan is five times the size of the army in Armenia. And Azerbaijan also has the help of the Turkish army, which is the eighth largest army in the world. So there's no way that the uh, Armenians can stand up to, to those two armies without some serious political pressure or help, uh, even militarily, from the United States at this point. Well, it seems that everybody has kind of settled their papers that Armenia is the... Uh... Uh, unfortunately, uh, in a bad position geographically, and they should be uh, cleansed out to make uh, business simpler for everybody else, including Chinese who are pushing their Belt and Road Initiative through that region. If that has been the case, um, and I know you have family members, including your son who's married to an Armenian woman who's in Armenia now, have the Armenians thought about 
the fact that we got to do it alone. And what is the plan that do you know that they're discussing that would be the most viable plan for them to be able to exist? And I know we got a couple of minutes. We could talk about that on the back end of the uh, next segment. But what is your initial thoughts about have you seen anything from the Armenian government and Armenian people to say this is a next step that we have to take to strategically be able to be viable here? Many of the Armenian people are saying the first step we've got to do is get rid of Pashinyan, our president, because he's the one who has capitulated several times now to the Azeris in the in the case of Azerbaijan and the and Artsakh. However, I would say that uh, in in many ways Pashinyan did basically the only thing he could do. Uh, his only other option was to uh, also lose. Artsakh, but also lose a bunch of soldiers in the process. He could lose Artsakh. He's going to lose Artsakh either way. He could have lost it by fighting and and having a bunch of his people killed, or he could have lost it by just giving it up. But that hurt the national pride of the Armenians, and so they want to get rid of him. They really don't have an option for uh, standing up to Azerbaijan by themselves. They have got to make a treaty with somebody. And I think right now, the most likely thing, if they don't get some sort of uh, movement on a political you know, ally with the United States, then they're going to go and lean towards Iran and try to get help from Iran uh, against Azerbaijan, because Iran and Azerbaijan are enemies. And uh, Iran is more likely to uh, step in uh, militarily and help the Armenians if necessary. Well, yeah, unfortunately, it's a reality. We pushed them into the arms of the, our enemy, but uh, so be it. Welcome to uh, world geopolitics. Uh, we're going to take a short break, come back, and we're going to discuss a bit more about Armenia. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. 
Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Welcome to the uh, uh, welcome back to the final segment of the National Security Hour. I'm your host, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Singer, U.S. Army retired. Uh, speaking to my good friend, a veteran uh, Chuck Holton, who's uh, also the host of the uh, Hot Zone with uh, Chuck Holton. Uh, we've been discussing the southern border, Panama. Uh, we've been discussing Nikola Karabakh, possible uh, future of regional wars there. Uh, and I do want to kind of shift right now and kind of look at it from a humanitarian perspective because Chuck has uh, done a movie that is based um, in Armenia that has won multiple awards. But I do want to make sure before we talk about the issues that the Armenians are dealing with, which is another Christian uh, community that might be on the verge of losing not just their nation, but uh, basically uh, you're on the verge of being annihilated. Uh, from the region, in this case, the Southern Caucasus, the Syrian Christians are facing the same thing. And, you know, under uh, U.S. protection, supposedly, when the United States invaded in 2003, Assyrians were 1.5 million. Uh, with NATO being on the ground, with um, uh, European Union being on the ground, with the uh, Japanese, the Koreans, uh, the Australians, uh, U.S. special operations being on the ground, um, the Assyrian Christians are butchered. Uh, under U.S. watch to the tune to where we only have 150,000 left. And recently on 27 September, uh, at a vetting venue, uh, the Assyrian nation lost 150 members of its community. 107 have been burned. 40 cannot be identified still. Five have are basically in pieces. And there's no DNA capability right now to be able to really identify who the deceased are. That fire broke out, as I said, in the uh, venue in the uh, city of Baghdad, uh, and that's really in the town of Hamdaniya, which is primarily Christian community just outside of Mosul. And uh, since 2014, when the Peshmerga Kurds, uh, Kurdish forces that were assigned to secure the area of Baghdad, disarmed the certain Christian militias in the middle of the night and es- escaped uh, back to Erbil. Uh, their capital of the KRG right now, uh, on the orders of the Kurdish regional government, they left the Syrian Christians and their families out there undefended against ISIS onslaught. And we know what happened with that uh, genocide that took place. Um, uh, you know, I use my 501c3 United Assyrian Appeal uh, to support the military families of the Syrian Christians who wanted to fight. And actually, we established the forward line of troops and we're able to conduct tier one, tier two level missions, both in Syria and uh, inside of Iraq, uh, ISIS held territories uh, against ISIS between 2014 and 2017. And then we had to pull the Syrian army out when the Kurds and the Arabs started bashing each other over the uh, Kurdish referendum. But uh, given that uh, nobody has any uh, desires from the Christian communities or any trust that any investigation that is going to be launched by the same authorities that have been banned in the battlefield in the region, there's going to be a full and fair investigation. Uh, so uh, the Australian community globally now today is demanding full 
uh, investigation or international investigation committee to be established to look into the events to verify that the government, uh, Iraqi government investigations and findings are correct and valid. Uh, so our prayers are with the community on this tragic event, and uh, uh, we will be addressed uh, addressing the issues and the individuals that are responsible as we see fit. Um, with that said, Chuck, um, you know, the Armenians are dealing with the same issue. It doesn't seem like anybody's going to come to support them uh, or rescue them. And I don't want to just say that uh, we're not going to do it because it makes no geo-strategic uh, sense for us to do that from the U.S. perspective or from the global perspective to help them. What are some of the things that they can do before we start looking into uh, the possibility of talking about, uh, of course, the movie that you have put together, uh, really focused uh, on Armenia? What are some of the things that they can do to possibly counter? Because I've always said to folks, there's three ways uh, a people or a nation can hold territory, take territory. One is you buy it. United States bought the uh, Louisiana Purchase. We bought Alaska. The previous POTUS, President Trump was even talking about uh, buying uh, uh, Greenland. Um, the other way to do it is you have to have a legal um, uh, right to own a piece of land or property. In case of the Syrian Christians, we're the indigenous people of Iraq. Every time you dig into the ground, everything you pull out, it says a Syrian on it. It does say Kurdish. It doesn't say Arab, it says Assyrian. Uh, and they don't have even those rights. And no one at the the United Nations is coming back and saying that based on the fact that this piece of property belongs to you and has belonged to you for 7,000 plus years, you need to be able to at least self-administer or rule it yourself. The other way you could do it is you have to have guns. And unfortunately, when you have um, uh, Western nations giving we weapons to, um, from the same perspective, is is our enemies. Uh, if you give weapons to the Kurds who are basically want you off that piece of property to claim it for themselves for a larger Kurdistan, or if you give it in this case to Azerbaijan government to basically bomb uh, Armenian Christians uh, to death to take their property, uh, you're kind of stuck. So what can these nations that just don't have the capability, in this case, in case just focus on Armenia, can do to maybe counter uh, or find another means or ways of being able to hold, secure, establish their uh, identity uh, in an independent way? There's no question that the uh, Armenians belong on that, pro on that territory. Uh, again, their roots go back literally thousands of years. Uh, it's not uncommon to find a church there that's over a thousand years old. Uh, and there is no other people group that has existed that long on that property. They're one of the oldest people groups is, that still exists on this planet. And so uh, they, they certainly have a claim to it. But uh, as far as being able to hold it militarily, it's just not an option for them. They, they're too small. They don't, they're too weak. They don't have the, the money or the power to do that. So they're going to have to pursue a political solution. And whether that is by cozying up to the West, to the United States, they, you know, the Armenians actually uh, reached out to the Ukrainians 
for the first time just a, about a month ago. Uh, and I think either donated some humanitarian supplies or uh, made some sort of noises like they were, uh, you know, siding with the Ukrainians in the war. And that obviously alienated uh, the Russians who were their big brother up until just recently. So uh, they are trying to move that direction. Uh, that's really uh, that one of their only options that's left. And uh, it's anybody's guess whether or not that will work or will uh, backfire on them and turn out to be their demise. Because uh, if they're it, it, right now, Azerbaijan is still receiving military aid every year from the United States, and they are uh, considered an ally of the West because of their oil and gas revenues. Uh, Ursula von Leyen, the president of the EU, uh, has been to Azerbaijan and met with Aliyev several times to, uh, you know, try to get more oil and gas out of them so that they can rely less on Russia. Uh, and every time that happens, Armenia gets hurt. Uh, so, you know, for Armenia to try to move that way is going to be swimming upstream, so to speak, and it's going to be difficult. Uh, but they've got to try something because otherwise they're going to lose their homeland. And that's something nobody wants to see. Uh, at least, you know, you were talking about um, supporting them from a geopolitical standpoint. There's not really a whole lot in it for the United States, except for that. Again, if we can make Russia lose face, weaken Russia more on that front, then that may hasten the end of the war in Ukraine and the fall of Vladimir Putin. That could be a possible good thing. Um, but the, you know, just from a moral standpoint, if you believe that uh, Ukraine didn't, you know, didn't attack Russia, that Russia attacked Ukraine and that, that countries should not attack their neighbors uh, when they're unprovoked, if you believe that Israel has a right to exist on their ancient lands, uh, even though they're surrounded by enemies that want to destroy them. So if you support Israel, if you support Ukraine, you should be supporting Armenia because Armenia is is in a very, very similar situation. But the roles are reversed here. And you've got Turkey, a NATO, uh, ostensible NATO ally, although they're not, and, and Azerbaijan, that are attacking this little country that was up until recently a, a little brother of Russia. And so it it's just very complex. And that's why I try to tell people my first, uh, the, the first thing I do when I look at a conflict is try to look at it from a moral standpoint. Who are the innocents in this? Who are the people who don't have, don't deserve to be, uh, you know, being attacked. And, if I side with the innocents, I think I can, I'm not going to go wrong that very often doing the right thing because it's the right thing ends up being the profitable thing, even though it doesn't seem like it uh, at first glance. Um, and so uh, just from a moral standpoint, we should stand with Armenia, but also Armenia holds actually a lot. It has a lot to offer in terms of natural beauty and wonderful places for tourists to go. It's the safest country in Asia. It's, it's a very homogenous country. It's a very friendly country. The people there absolutely are the warmest human beings on planet earth. I think they, they just, the, you, you cannot meet like like we, there's been several times where i've been walking around in someone's front yard uh not knowing that that 
the house was occupied and somebody comes out where in the States, if that happened, the first thing they would do is say, get off my property. But instead they say, Oh, hi, <laughs> come on in. And they just let you in their house. Just, and you know, Kurds are like that. And, uh, and the Assyrians Christians are like that too. But these are the, some of the most warm and friendly people on the planet. And that's because they have a, a foundation of Christianity going back millennia that says, treat other people the way you'd like to be treated, love one another, love, love your enemies, you know? And I think really uh, that's what it's going to have to come down to is that Armenia came into existence as a Christian nation through a tremendous act of forgiveness on the part of a, a, a man called Gregory, the illuminate illuminator uh, who, who forgave and prayed for the King who threw him in the dungeon for 13 years. And the King was healed because of those prayers. Uh, and so I think that the most powerful thing that Armenians could do right now is maybe start to pray for their enemies and, and love their enemies in a way that would be so shocking to their enemies that the, the, it would upend the apple cart of geopolitics in that region. Uh, and I know that sounds very, very difficult. I've heard a lot of Armenians say we could never forgive the Azeris for what they've done to us in our land. And I'm not saying that the, the government should forgive. That's not the government's job. But if you don't want your enemy to live rent-free in your head, you've got to forgive your enemy and you've got to love your enemy and find a way to do that. And uh, very often that is the most powerful thing you can do for uh, lasting change. Well, sometimes you got to find them on that uh, spiritual realm, right? Uh, I know mm -hmm. that when the uh, Nazi German military has surrendered, uh, there is a uh, story of um, a British uh, officer basically debriefing a uh, um, uh, Nazi general. And uh, as he asked them, you know, there's a weapon system we created. What did you guys create to counter it? Uh, they always had a counter. And finally, um, they came a time with the British uh, officers basically sitting down, reflecting, saying, man, uh, there's like absolutely nothing here that we created that didn't counter he said, is there anything to the uh, Nazi uh, general that uh, we created that you guys could not counter? And then the Nazi general thinking about it said, well, there is one thing. You guys uh, were praying for uh, Great Britain. And uh, we were asked to find a way to counter it. But we really couldn't counter it, right? Because uh, we weren't uh, uh, in a position where we could create something that could counter your prayers. So all we could do is was either pray that we would win, but uh, we couldn't decide whether or not we were on the right side or not, even though, you know, we were fighting uh, for the preservation of the nation. So, you know, prayer does have a lot to do with it. And I always have said to our folks that, uh, you know, pray is important, but, you know, I come from an insurgency side of the house too. You know, I fought against insurgencies, <laughs> left them. And uh, I said to my community where they were complaining that the world community is not paying attention to us. I said, go blow up a couple of uh, uh, oil pipelines, see how fast the entire international community will land here with all their force assets. And frankly, uh, if I was Armenian leadership, and I'm not saying to do this, if it does, please do not come and uh, knock on my door with uh, black helicopters lying in my backyard. But um, I would go ahead and uh, make sure that the Baku pipeline becomes fair game if I was an Armenian military planner. And I would make sure everybody, once it's done, is aware that you put us in this position. You're not getting any gas and oil 
for the rest of your time during this winter. So either you're going to come over here and pretend like you care about us and do the moral thing, or we are going to make sure that you suffer the consequences of what you have done by pursuing nothing more than uh, energy uh, pipeline requirements, allowing the uh, Azaris who had the weapon system to kill the uh, uh, you know ancient Christian community here. So I'm a little bit different than uh, most because I approach it from an insurgency perspective. And I think yeah. uh, you'll be shocked how fast on you the the uh, entire uh, rural community will get a uh, moral compass and they'll decide, you know, it's time to save the Armenians. God bless them all. We got a couple of minutes. I know we talked a little bit too much, but tell us about the movie, Chuck. And if you go over, so be it. I want to know what led to the idea of the movie and uh, where can we see that in the future? So what uh, Armenia needs most is they need people to know about them. They need awareness. Uh, if more people knew about Armenia, more people would su support Armenia. They, that's just a simple fact. Uh, when you go to Armenia, you cannot help but fall in love with that country. It is so beautiful. It is so clean. It is so safe. It is so, uh, you know, historic. Uh, their culture, their food, everything about that country is, it is like Europe was 50 years ago. It's that, that just wholesome, clean, beautiful place. And so more people need to know about it. And so I decided to make a documentary about my experience in coming to know and love Armenia. And in the process of making the documentary, my son came with me and liked Armenia so much that he decided to move there. And about a month after that, he met the woman that he ended up marrying. And so it became a different kind of love story uh, that we end up telling through the documentary. And it's a, it's just a beautiful story. I know a lot of people say, well, Armenia, I don't know anything about that. Why would I watch that movie? But believe me, it's just a beautiful love story to watch this documentary. And I think it'll make you want to go visit. And that I hope it does. Because again, the more people that go visit Armenia, the more support they're going to have from the world community. Chuck, they will. And it's a beautiful movie. And I ask all our audiences to go ahead and watch it. And I also would ask our audiences also keep in mind, as I said, we're collecting money with unitedassunipeel.net, unitedassunipeel.net to help the victims of the fires in uh, northern Iraq, a certain name plane. I want to thank my guest, Chuck Holton. And also I want to thank uh, everybody for joining us on this mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear and the epic battle to defend the United States of America. Chuck, we're going to have you back again, buddy. It is a pleasure. God bless. And thank you for being on the show tonight. My pleasure. People can go to armaniamovie.com to go see the movie. Thank you very much. God bless. God bless.